Welcome back once again to the Counter Vortex, a perfect dozen. This is our 12th episode of our podcast with your host, Bill Weinberg. And we're opening up once again with some music of our good friend Mo Alilech, the uh, Berber or Amazir songster from Algeria, now living out in Portland, Oregon. And that was his song, In Memory of a Hero from his 2010 album of that same name in memory of a hero. And the hero in question is Lunes Matub, the great Berber folk singer and culture hero um, who um, was mysteriously killed exactly 20 years ago, June 25th, 1998. So we are doing this episode of the Counter Vortex podcast in homage to Lunes Matub, and looking at um, at his life in the context of what's going on in the world today, because it's uh, it's actually extremely relevant what he lived through and what he experienced, uh, and the the events of his time, uh, which ultimately led to his death, have got you know, a lot to say about the world that we're living in today, particularly what's going on in North Africa and the Middle East. And one thing about Lunes Matub is that he had, as the saying goes, all the right enemies. Um, It's unclear even now who was responsible for his death. And in a certain sense, it doesn't matter, as we shall see. He was killed on a mountain road in the Georgia Mountains of northern Algeria, which is also where he was born and where he grew up, a region known as Kabylia in the northeast of the country, which is uh, the heartland of the Berber people in Algeria. I should say something about the Berbers. The Berbers, as they are known to the outside world, are the indigenous people of North Africa. They were the people who were living there before the Arabs arrived in the 7th century of the Common Era. They refer to themselves in their own language as Amazir, that's uh, A-M-A-Z-I-G-H. That's the singular. The plural is Imazirin, and their uh, language is known as Tamazit, related to Arabic, but distantly related to Arabic. They're both a part of the uh, greater Afro-Asiatic language group, of which the Semitic languages form a part, the Semitic languages including both Arabic and Hebrew, but um, not um, Tamazit or Berber, which is another branch of the Afro-Asiatic language group. And they call their homeland Tamazah, or um, basically what we would call North Africa, or what the Arabs call the Maghreb. And 
For the past several generations, they have, like indigenous peoples all over the world, been fighting for their own autonomy and culture and a dignified place in their own society, which has been dominated by the, uh, you know, the dominant ethnic group. The, although uh, the, the Berbers may actually form a, uh, or the Imazirin may actually form a, um, a demographic majority in Algeria. Um, and uh, other of the North African countries. But um, under the official ideology of Arab nationalism, um, they've been uh, relegated to a sort of a second-class status. And, well, uh, to go over a little bit of history here, the first time this played itself out is, of course, um, Algeria won its independence from the French in um, 1962 after a brutal, brutal war, a bloody, bloody struggle. Finally, they won their independence from the French. And immediately the very following year was the first Berber uprising, 1963, um, when basically there was a, a falling out between the, uh, the Berber elements of the, of the independence leadership who wanted a dignified place for Kabylia and the Berber culture in a free Algeria, and uh, the, um, the forces around Ben Bella, the leader of the new regime, who were committed to an ideology of, um, of Arab nationalism and basically constructing a uh, sort of a monocultural project for the country. And, of course, um, the people around Ben Bella won. He was later himself removed in a coup d'etat, but um, the uh, ideology of Arab nationalism remained hegemonic. Until finally we come to the events of 1980 and the Berber Spring. We've all heard about the, uh, the Arab Spring of, uh, of 2011, which has uh, really uh, you know, shaped the, changed the shape of the political order in the Middle East today, and, and we'll speak more about that later. Uh, you could say that you know, the very first flickers of that were in the Berber Spring of 1980. Uh, when there in uh, there was a, a general popular uprising in the Kabylia region of um, of Algeria, and um, interestingly, it began with a uh, you know, not even you know a political or economic demand, but really it began with, in in a protest against an act of cultural repression, where a um, a presentation by the scholar Moulud Mameri at um, the University of Tizi Ouzou, which is the capital of the Kabylia region uh, on Berber poetry was shut down by the authorities. And this is what, um, this is what sparked the uprising of, um, of April, 1980, the so-called Berber spring. Um, this is what I call the linguistic front of struggle and understanding that, you know, language, something which we take for granted is, um, is actually, uh, you know, we use it every day without thinking about it, <laughs> except when we do think about it, and you know, we sort of have the meta conversation, which is not, um, uh, which, which we don't do enough. Language is actually something which is intensely political. And uh, there are, uh, you know, a few languages which are um, increasingly hegemonic around the world. Obviously, first and foremost, English. But, uh, you know, the other big languages which are hegemonic around the world, of course, are, you know, English, Spanish. French, Portuguese, um, Chinese, and uh, Russian and Arabic. And uh, so this was, you know, a, um, a, uh, a language which, you know, an indigenous language 
outside of uh, you know the um, the sphere of what is um, officially embraced by uh, the government and the dominant institutions of the country, demanding its place, demanding its survival, first and foremost, and demanding uh, a dignified place. So um, it was, this was actually the issue which sparked the Berber uprising, the so-called Berber Spring of 1980. Now, Lunes Matub was born in a village of the George Oran Mountains of Kabylia, as I said, by um, the time of the... Uh, of the Arab of the uh, of the Berber Spring in 1980, he was already living in Paris. Uh, Kabylia is one of the many places around the world where um, uh, one of its main exports is its young men, <laughs> because there isn't enough of an economy there to sustain them. So uh, there's lots of uh, you know young Berbers uh, beginning probably in the uh, even in the colonial era. Um, you know, started um, moving to France for work. And Lunes Matoub was a part of that wave. But uh, he became a, uh, a folk singer playing the, the mandol, which is the uh, traditional Algerian lute, the same instrument that we heard Moali Lech playing uh, in the opening cut. Um, and he uh, gained quite a following in the, um, in the Berber exile community or, um, or immigrant community in France um, and became uh, quite a popular star there. And then eventually began to gain a following, even though he was still living in France, began to gain a following in his homeland in Kabylia as well. Uh, As a Berber singer, he was barred from the official radio stations, um, which were, uh, which were fairly hegemonic. The state government, you know, the state run radio stations in Algeria, wouldn't play his music, but there were a few uh, private radio stations which did, and more importantly, his uh, music was distributed through a sort of an informal or underground network of um, cassette tapes. Remember cassette tapes? I do. So uh, that's how he was, you know, throughout this period, sort of gaining a following in in his own homeland, in Kabylia. And uh, during the um, the Berber Spring in 1980, he sort of really adopted this as a cause, and he became um, uh, something of a political folk singer, and was really, you know, um, demanding, uh, you know, uh, a dignified place in Algerian society for the Berber people, and uh, for the Imaziran, and, um, and 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 singing in support of the uh, the protesting students and workers in Kabylia. In 1988, he returned to Algeria because there was a, but now it's eight years after the Berber Spring, but there was a, a new wave of protest which was emerging, uh, mostly uh, around um, uh, students in the universities in Algiers. And he went back to, um, he went back to Kabylia to try to um, uh, drum up some support for the protesting students in Algiers in Tizi Ozum, in the capital of Kabylia. And this was kind of a, an example of, uh, you know, Berber-Arab solidarity against what was called in Algeria the pouvoir, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, the power, which was sort of the uh, corrupt network of, um, of army generals who uh, basically controlled things behind the scenes and, and controlled the economy and, uh, and were the real, you know, the, the, the real ruling power in, in Algeria, which was uh, pretty much a dictatorship. And it was kind of a, um, 
uh, a democracy in name, I suppose, but the elections were, were thoroughly controlled and it was really this network of generals known as the Pauvier who were controlling things behind the scenes. So um, in 1988, the same year that he had returned to, um, to his native Kabylia, was uh, the first sort of hair-raising episode where um, he was uh, driving with some friends along a mountain road and they were waylaid by the police, by the, uh, the secret police, that is to say the national political police, not just the local cops. And uh, he was shot. Uh, it's unclear exactly what happened, but um, apparently they were just being stopped and questioned. Uh, Lunes and his friends were just being stopped and, and questioned by the cops on this, you know, who pulled them over on this mountain road. And uh, one, of the, um, one of the officers opened fire on him. And he was shot several times. I think he was shot something like five times. So um, he was immediately evacuated to uh, the Tizio Zoo and then to Algiers and then finally back to Paris where um, they put him back together. He was very, very badly, uh, badly hurt. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he needed serious surgery. His insides were a mess and some of his bones were shattered. Um, but nonetheless, he survived. And this only politicized him yet further. And he became, uh, you know, performing once again back in Paris. He became an even more, um, you know, outspoken and militant advocate for his people. And uh, then, (laughs) contrary to uh, the exhortations of all of his friends, he actually returned to Kabylia again. Around the and uh, but this time around the elections in um, in 1991 and this is where um, Algeria really went over the edge into a period of civil war and terrible terrible bloodshed and a really overt dictatorship because in the um, in the elections of 1991 finally people were getting fed up with the uh, pouvoir if I'm pronouncing it correctly the power I make no um, claims to being able to pronounce French. <clears throat> Finally, people were beginning to, you know, get corrupt with, get fed up with this, you know, corrupt network of generals who were the de facto power that was running the country. Uh, but unfortunately, they were rallying around a uh, uh, a sort of, um, uh, you know, Islamist uh, fundamentalist outfit called um, the um, the FIS, the Islamic Salvation Front. And when uh, the Islamic Salvation Front uh, won enough votes in the first round that there was going to have to be a runoff, and it seemed extremely likely that they were going to win in the second round, the, uh, the government canceled the second round of elections. And basically, democracy was suspended in Algeria. This began uh, a really bloody period where um, elements of uh, the FIS, the Islamic Salvation Front, went underground and took up arms in the name of the GIA, the Armed Islamic Group, and launched an insurgency. And uh, there was a whole um, sort of cycle of massacres and counter-massacres between the GIA and government forces. And over the course of the next 10 years, it's possible that something uh, something on the order of um, 100,000 people or, or possibly m- many more were killed in Algeria, and it got shamefully little um, attention from the outside world at this time. I mean, this was a real, uh, you know, you could argue almost a genocide. So um, during this period, the uh, the Berber movement, 
sort of really emerged as what you could call a third force in Algerian politics, which was, uh, you know, for, first of all, for, again, a dignified place in Berber society, a dignified place in Algerian society for the Berbers and their culture and their language. And um, secondly, for democracy in Algeria, in repudiation both of the ruling generals and of the GIA. And it should be stated that the, um, you know, the, um, the ruling generals and the Islamist opposition were equally hostile to the notion of um, you know, a Berber cultural rights identity or autonomy. So it became clear that um, you know, the rumors were going around, and they seemed quite credible, that the Lunes Matub had been blacklisted by both sides. He had been targeted for death by both sides. And finally, in um, 1994, again, he was driving on a mountain road and his, um, his car was waylaid, but this time not by the police, but by seemingly by a, um, a group of armed militants from the GIA, from the armed Islamic group, who kidnapped him and uh, took him off to a uh, remote guerrilla camp up in the mountains. And um, for several weeks, he was held. And almost everybody who had ever been abducted by the GIA did not live to tell the story. They killed almost everybody who they took. But in this case, amazingly, after being held for several weeks and being, you know, um, subjected to, a, you know, a sort of a mock trial at a guerrilla camp up in the mountains where, you know, I mean, he told his captors what they wanted to hear, that, you know, he repented and that, you know, he would be a good Muslim and he would give up, uh, you know, being a, a musician because he understood that, you know, music is contrary to Islam and against God's will. And so is Berber culture and all of this. You know, he basically telling his captors what they wanted to hear, eating the humiliation in the hope that perhaps he could survive, but without much hope in that he could survive. Amazingly, he was freed. The captors dropped him off at a mountain village and sent him on his way. And it later emerged that this was because, I mean, he had no way of knowing this, of course, but um, it later emerged that, you know, all of um, uh, you know, Berber society across Kabylia had been mobilizing in, um, in his defense to demand that he be liberated and, um, and liberated unharmed. And you know, they even uh, took up the slogan, Matub or the gun, basically saying that if uh, Lunes Matub was not freed, then the Berbers themselves would, um, would get organized and armed and, um, and, and, and actually, you know, uh, militarily engage the, uh, the, the armed Islamic group. So this was a, um, a real a real victory for the people. Uh, and and the, the, the really inspiring thing about it is that the threat worked. They didn't actually have to resort to arms, but the mere fact that they were, um, you know, the Berbers of Kabylia were raising their voice unanimously to demand his, uh, to his release and, uh, you know, making clear that Kabylia would not be governable either for the, for the GIA or for, for, the, for the corrupt generals. Unless, um, unless Lunes Matub was freed, you know, it worked. That's the really beautiful thing about it. 
The not so beautiful thing about it is that um, just four years later, on June 25th, 1998, this story played itself out for yet a third time. And uh, this time it was fatal. Once again, he was driving uh, this time with his um, with his wife and sister-in-law on a mountain road up in the George Jorah Mountains of Kabylia. The car was waylaid by some gunmen. Lunes Matub was shot dead. And I believe um, that uh, his wife and um, his two sister-in-laws were also wounded in the attack. And uh, it remains unclear, even to this day, who was behind it. There, uh, Some people were put on trial, but it's been contested. The family has claimed that there was a cover-up. And um, it's unclear whether it was the... Um, whether government agents were behind it or Islamist guerrillas were behind it. And once again, it, in a certain sense, it doesn't matter. Because like I said, you know, Lunis Matub had all the right enemies. And that's a really, really important thing in this life is to have all of the right enemies. Um, but he was a uh, very, very key to um, the whole Berber cultural revival, which took place during the years that he was singing and was active. And um, just uh, two years after he was killed, three years after he was killed in um, April of 2001, there was uh, yet again, there was kind of a replay of, um, of the Berber Spring in April of 2001. There was kind of a sequel to the events of the Berber Spring with a, uh, a wave of protest breaking out, this time following the death of a, of a Berber youth at the hands of the police in and uh, once again, you know, as in 1980, uh, we, once again, in, again, in, uh, in April of 2001, the protests were very harshly put down by uh, the security forces, uh, you know, at a cost of uh, something like 100 killed. Um, so uh, and this, you could say, you know, was kind of, you know, April 2001. This was kind of a, um, a an early harbinger, you know, a very early, um, you know, foreshadowing of um, of what would occur exactly 10 years later with the so-called Arab Spring or the Arab Revolution, which began in Tunisia and then spread leading, uh, you know, over the course of that absolutely amazing year of 2011 to, uh, you know, governments falling in Tunisia, Egypt, Libya, Yemen. And it should be noted that the Arab Spring or the Arab Revolution, was also a Berber Revolution. It was both. And uh, particularly, uh, and I mentioned uh, the countries where, uh, where the regime actually fell, or at least where the president actually fell. <laughs> we'll get back later to um, what's actually, you know, how things have actually transpired in those countries. But, uh, you know, at least the, the leader actually was forced to step down or was, you know, overthrown. Um, in uh, Tunisia, Egypt, Libya, and Yemen. But there were uh, protests, of course, also in Syria, in Bahrain, in Jordan, in Morocco, and, um, and several other countries. You just didn't hear about it too much because it was sort of overshadowed by, uh, you know, the larger movements and the, the wounds which actually turned into armed, um, you know, insurrections such as, uh, you know, uh, Libya and Syria. But there were um, peaceful protest movements 
demanding um, you know, a, a democratic opening or, more ambitiously, the fall of the regime, really in almost every Arab country, many of which... Uh, in that year, in 2011, many of which, of course, have also got very substantial Berber populations. And uh, one of them was Morocco. There were um, very big protests in Morocco that year. Um, We're bringing together both Arabs and Berbers to uh, demand, uh, you know, greater democracy and limits on the power of the king, and uh, particularly to demand uh, greater a greater place in society for Berber culture. And in fact, one of the gains of, um, of, of the Arab Spring in Morocco was a, um, a constitutional reform, which did indeed make um, the Berber language, Tamazit, an official language of the country on, a, um, on an equal footing with Arabic. Uh, in Algeria itself, um, the regime has been... Um, been starting to finally uh, broach this as a possibility in response to uh, the emergence recently of an actual um, separatist initiative in Kabylia, where, you know, some Berbers are actually starting to talk openly for the first time, I will point out, for the first time throughout this long history. Some of the Berber leadership in response to the intransigence of the regime um, are uh, actually now starting to talk about secession from Algeria. And uh, in response to this threat, you know, finally, the, even the Algerian regime, which has now, you know, returned to some kind of normality after the horrific events of the 1990s, uh, the Algerian regime is finally now beginning to um, uh, open up a little bit in terms of recognizing, um, uh, recognizing the Berber language, Tamazit, as uh, an official language of the country, if not on uh, an equal footing with Arabic. So um, there's some progress. Uh, let me talk about Libya, very, uh, very sort of an unrecognized aspect of the whole situation in Libya is that, uh, you know, there was a, um, a real strong Berber dimension to the revolution in Libya in 2011, where um, the, uh, just like the, um, the Berber stronghold in Algeria is the Georgia Mountains in the northeast of the country, the uh, Berber stronghold in Libya is the Nafusa Mountains in the uh, northwest of the country. And uh, when uh, there was the offensive on, um, on Tripoli in March of 2011 to drive Gaddafi from power, what was getting all the media attention was uh, the, uh, you know, the... Arab-led offensive from uh, Benghazi to the east and uh, almost overlooked in the media coverage that there was also a Berber-led offensive from the Nafusa Mountains to the west um, on on, on Tripoli. And finally, of course, they succeeded in driving driving Gaddafi from power. And certainly, now let's talk about the way things have transpired in uh, in the ensuing years. In, um, in the countries which were most dramatically affected by the Arab Revolution, uh, beginning, with, beginning with Libya, since we're on the subject. And uh, I don't have to elaborate, I hope, on you know, the disastrous way that things have worked out in Libya. And uh, I've got, there's no need to elaborate on the point. We are all well aware of it. The country has got at least two, arguably three, different competing governments um, which are basically at war with one another, as well as you know, both being at war with um, with Islamist insurgents 
and there's been uh, you know terrible uh, you know ethnic persecution of uh, of black African immigrants, um, as well as of um, of the Berbers and the um, and the Tuaregs of the interior of the country. Uh, you know, terrible violence, obviously, um, extreme horrific human rights abuses, a reemergence of the slave trade in, uh, you know, intercepted um, uh, African migrants in the in the desert interior of the country. Okay, here I am elaborating on it when I said that I wouldn't. Okay, we're all well aware of this, and there isn't any need to elaborate on it. But what I really object to is the, uh, do you know this word schadenfreude, this German word schadenfreude, which means taking pleasure at the, um, at, at the uh, misfortune of others? This essentially has been the position of the international left regarding what's happening in Libya. Oh, there you go. That's what happens when, um, you know, when Western imperialism, uh, you know, uh, backs rebels to overthrow a dictator. Happy now? Which is a really unconscionable attitude. I mean, my attitude was that, uh, you know, during the... um, during the revolution against Gaddafi, that despite all of the contradictions, and inevitably there are contradictions, because that's how historical process unfolds, is through contradiction, is that in spite of all the contradictions, we had to be supporting the uh, the, the pro-democracy forces and the, the forces which were for a, a multicultural, um, uh, democratic Libya, in spite of everything. And in spite of, you know, the complicating factor that the Western imperialism, really, it was mostly the French and the British. The U.S. was really playing third fiddle. But, you know, NATO was intervening. Of course, this, you know, made everything a lot more complicated for us. Absolutely. But um, that was my position, is that in spite of everything, we had to support the, uh, the, the, the forces in Libya, which were for some kind of a you know, democratic, multicultural future for the country, not the forces of Muammar Gaddafi, the brutal dictator who had been maintaining you know, a personal autocracy in the country for the past 40 years. And uh, similarly, that's my position today, okay? Now that um, the situation has in many ways worked out very, very poorly, one would say disastrously in Libya, um, it is still incumbent upon us to support the forces in the country which are struggling for some kind of a pluralistic, democratic, multicultural future for the country. Just as it was in 2011, just as that was our job in 2011, it's still our job today. And among those forces, I would argue, are um, the Berbers, who now have their own self-governing autonomous zone in the Nafusa Mountains. And if you are looking for a bright side in the generally pretty horrific struggle in Libya, well, there it is. Under the 40-year dictatorship of Muammar Gaddafi, the language of the Berber people Tamazit had been banned in Libya, barred from the airwaves, barred from print media, barred from the education system. It had been banned exactly in the same sense that Francisco Franco in Spain had banned the language of the Basques and the Catalans, exactly in the same sense that Stalin in Russia had you know banned the language of the um, of the Lithuanians and the Estonians, so there is no conceivable way to excuse or apologize for this kind of oppression. And what's managed to happen 
in um, in Libya in the ensuing years is that now the Berbers are actually in control in the Nafusa Mountains. They actually have their own self-governing autonomous zone there. And there has been a tremendous Berber cultural renaissance where they actually are conducting education in their own language, printing books and magazines in their own language, doing radio programming in their own language. And elsewhere in the country, you know, the um, scattered Berber minorities in places like Tripoli and Benghazi have, in fact, come under some persecution by, I will point out, both of the um, uh, contesting governments, in, but particularly the forces of, um, which are in control of, uh, of Benghazi under uh, the warlord Khalifa Haftar, I have to say, um, you know, they have been, you know, once again, as under the Gaddafi regime that they fought against, <laughs> you know, persecuting the, uh, the Berbers, you know, the, the, the scattered Berber populations in the sort of, you know, internal diaspora within, within Libya. And this is kind of a case of, you know, meet the new boss, same as the old boss, right? But um, actually in the Nafusa Mountains, in the Berber heartland, of, of Libya, that, you know, the Berbers can now boogie in public, so to speak, and there's actually a Berber cultural renaissance going on here. So when you're so quick to portray what's happening in Libya as an unmitigated disaster and to, um, you know, spout all of this, you know, Gaddafi nostalgia and, well, at least things were stable under Gaddafi and all of this, you know, repugnant talk that I hear from people on the left. Well, why don't you talk to the Berbers in the Nafusa Mountains and see what they have to say about the question. Where, you know, they've actually recovered the, line, the, the, the right to speak their own language in public. Imagine that. So there's a glimmer of hope from Libya amidst what's, uh, you know, quite a, uh, in many ways, a disastrous situation, which I readily acknowledge. There's a glimmer of hope. Um, uh, we have already noted, you know, the more modest gains of the uh, of the Arab Revolution in Morocco, where uh, you know the the king wasn't overthrown, and I don't believe that the king's overthrow or regime change in Morocco was ever really a demand of the um, of the revolution. Nonetheless, greater democratic space, including dem- greater you know um, cultural space for for the Berbers, was opened up as a gain of the Arab Spring. Um, since then, unfortunately, uh, you know, like I said, during the, during the, the Arab Spring protests of, um, uh, of 2011, the Moroccan Berbers and Arabs were pretty much united. Uh, unfortunately, in recent, um, recent months and years, you know, some ethnic tension has emerged and there's been some ugly incidents of, uh, you know, Arab Berber rioting in um, in Morocco, which is not good. That's certainly one to watch. But uh, okay, looking at the countries where the um, where the Arab Revolution really um, really shook things up. Well, Tunisia is the most obvious success story. Tunisia is the one country where the Arab Revolution really shook things up, where the dictator was overthrown and there was some kind of successful transition to democracy. Um, in Egypt, of course. It looks like a new dictatorship has been consolidated around General al-Sisi. Libya, we've um, already discussed where, you know, the dictator was overthrown, but things have really descended into chaos. Um, Yemen, the president was forced to step down, but uh, really the regime remained intact. And um, unfortunately, it descended into an ethnic war. And now Yemen is one of the worst humanitarian crises on the planet. Syria, 
the dictator has remained in power and has escalated the genocide in order to stay in power. About two years ago, it looked like he was on the brink of falling, and then he called in Russian intervention. And uh, with the help of, you know, massive Russian air power, and actually, you know, resorting to, you know, serial poison gas attacks, Bashar Assad has managed to um, has managed to maintain not only maintain in power, but actually managed to conquer back much of the country, which... Um, which, which had been lost to the rebel forces. And uh, right now, you know, as I'm speaking, uh, you know, there's basically not counting the Kurdish autonomous zone in the northeast, which is kind of a separate discussion, but the areas which are under control of um, the FSA, the Free Syrian Army and its allies, uh, basically there's, there's two remaining. There's Idlib in the north and there's Daraa in the south. And, um, and as I speak, the regime is now opening an offensive on Daraa. And uh, this is particularly tragic because, you know, while um, the, the rebels in the north in Idlib tend to be uh, dominated by some fairly, uh, you know, ugly, uh, you know, jihadist and Islamist forces, although the unarmed secular civil resistance continues to have some breathing space there as well, I hasten to emphasize, uh, the, um, the FSA Southern Front in Dera has been uh, kind of, uh, you know, secular nationalist and um, and uh, and has been opposed to the to the Islamist elements. So um, the fact it's you know it's very telling that the regime has has chosen to attack them first, and it's going to be very critical to watch what happens in uh, in Dara in the coming uh, weeks and months. Really, uh, to me, a really heartbreaking situation in um, in in Syria at the moment. And uh, then uh, you know Bahrain is the other significant country where there was really you know very very serious uprising demanding the downfall of the regime where uh, that did not happen. And in fact, the regime remains in power. So um, here we are. It's uh, 2011, 2012, 2013, 2014, 2015, 2016, 2017, 2018. How many years is that? Seven years after the Arab Revolution began. Here we are in 2018. And um, at this extremely, you know, dire moment on the entire planet where Syria, in addition to now it looks like, you know, the last remnants of the revolution are in danger of being exterminated. It's also become a uh, sort of a geopolitical minefield with, uh, you know, massive uh, military intervention by Russia, Turkey, the United States and other foreign powers, which means that it's a potential flashpoint for international confrontation, uh, you know, global confrontation, a potential flashpoint for um, potential flashpoint for world war. Um, and, uh, you know, and in addition to this, you know, just a, a few remnants, just a few sparks left of the um, of the original spirit of the Arab Revolution of 2011, which, of course, was part of a greater global ferment in 2011, which also included the protests in Greece, the Indignado movement in Spain, Occupy Wall Street here in the United States, etc. And, uh, you know, now, I mean, it looks more and more like, you know, between what Trump is doing here at home in the United States, these, um, uh, you know, uh, lesser despots such as Orban in Hungary and Erdogan in Turkey, Duterte in the Philippines, seemingly, you know, constructing their own ugly, xenophobic, ethno-nationalist dictatorships. 
And then, you know, you've got the other giants of the world stage where Vladimir Putin has essentially been, you know, urging on all these Euro-fascist thugs like Orban and um, consolidating a dictatorship at home in Russia. And Xi Jinping sort of, like as I've been saying, it sort of inherited a, uh, a one-party dictatorship, but has been turning it into an even more rigidly closed personal autocratic dictatorship. Things on the global stage really look pretty grim at this moment. They look very, 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 very dark indeed. And um, I think that it's at moments like this that we can look back to, you know, 2011 was not that long ago, just seven years ago. And there was uh, such an upsurge of hope all around the world that year. And there's still a few flames alive, which we can hopefully try to fan and to reignite and to build some resistance once again to this, you know, really sinister trajectory that the planet seems to be on at this moment. And um, draw inspiration from those who have um, struggled and struggled and struggled and struggled in spite of everything, in spite of every conceivable setback, in spite of every conceivable reversal, in spite of every conceivable act of terror and treachery, and struggled not only in spite of everything, but against everything, and didn't get confused, and fought against both the dictatorship of Algeria and the Islamist rebels who sought to impose their own dictatorship. And of course, I'm speaking about Lunes Matub. Killed 20 years ago today, June 25th, 1998. A story worth remembering. Uh, I'm just going to give a plug for a book here. I know a lot of this uh, story. Well, first of all, from speaking with people like Moali Lech and my other Berber friends who are um, keeping um, the legacy of Lunes Matub alive, but also there's a really excellent essay about his life and death by Andy Morgan, entitled Gorilla of Pop, Lunes Matub and the Struggle for Berber Identity in Algeria, in the book Shoot the Singer, Music Censorship Today, which was uh, published by um, Zed Books out of the United Kingdom in 2004. Really great book. And unfortunately, Shoot the Singer is all too literally what they did in the case of uh, Lunes Matub. But as I say, particularly at, at, at dark moments like this, almost seemingly, you know, hopeless moments like this, you know, I uh, look to people like Lunes Matub to give me um, some kind of some kind of inspiration. And, uh, you know, if he could keep going in spite of everything that he went through, in spite of being shot, in spite of being abducted and kept on, you know, doggedly speaking out. And fighting for what he believed in, right, what was right, until he paid the ultimate price. Uh, you know, it's lives like that that perhaps, you know, shame us, if nothing else, into doing what we can. Hail and farewell, Lunes Matub. And we're going to go out once again with um, Moali Lech in his song, In Memory of a Hero, in homage to Lunes Matub. This has been The Counter Vortex with me. Bill Weinberg, please check us out online. Countervortex.org is our website where we blog about autonomy struggles all over the world. And um, please do support us on Patreon if you got anything out of um, this rant that I did tonight. 
The link is right on our website, countervortex.org. Check it out and uh, support us on Patreon. And hopefully uh, talk to you in uh, two weeks about um, the really horrific situation, which is unfolding with Trump's concentration camps here at home in the United States. So talk to you then. Stay tuned. Join the resistance. And um, Azul, which is the Berber greeting for um, both hello and farewell.
Thank you. 